It is sure good to be back with you folks at Marbley today. And I come to you asking your prayers today because in the possibility of being called as your interim pastor, I hope it's a good possibility after the first two services have said okay. I hope you'll go along with that, but thankful for this opportunity and ask you just to pray. Pray that God will use this time of me serving in this role with you to help you prepare for the man that God has already chosen for Marvelous that's out there. And the search team is simply seeking to discover how God is leading. And just pray that this will be a time of spiritual preparation in the life of this church. And in that light today, we go all the way back to the beginning, the beginning of the church. We look back 2,000 years to when the church exploded out of the starting gates. So I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 2. If you're new to Bible study, that's the fifth book of the New Covenant, Acts 2. We're going to be studying the whole chapter. Now, that's a lot of biblical real estate to cover, so get ready, get ready. But we're going to introduce our study by looking at verses 1 through 4 and skip over and read verses 21 through 24. And recognizing this is the Word of God, in honor of God, let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Father, as we stand before you in this hour, we thank you that you, our creator, the God of the universe, has a personal message for all of us. And Father, may you speak to us now and may we receive your word in faith. May we believe your word and may we apply your word to our everyday life. And Father, as always, May all that is said and done here be centered on your son, Jesus. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Those of us who are pastors, those of us who are concerned about the church, are always interested in church growth. And yet I'll never forget hearing Rick Warren speak years ago where he said, you know, there's so much emphasis on church growth, but really the more important thing is church health. Now listen carefully. 
He goes on to say it's like a little child because the church is a living organism. Like a child, when that child is healthy, when that child is in a healthy environment, you can't stop that child from growing. But when the child is unhealthy in an unhealthy environment, it can greatly hinder their growth. And so it is with the local church. Growth is a byproduct of a healthy church. So today, we go all the way back to the beginning to consider this theme, the signs of a healthy church. What are those signs? Sign number one, spirit-filled leadership. In verses one through four, we see at this perfect time in history, according to God's perfect timing, he chooses the second of three great feasts of the Jews for the beginning of the church. The first great feast in the spring is Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is when Jesus was crucified. Now in the second great feast of the Jews, where they celebrate the first fruits of the harvest, Jews by the hundreds of thousands, as they did at Passover, returned to Jerusalem in this second great feast to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. At this time, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the Holy Spirit comes upon the leaders of the church. Now, understand what was happening. The disciples minus Judas had gathered in that time from the 40th day after the resurrection where Jesus ascended to heaven to this time, 10 days, in a concentrated 10-day prayer meeting. It was not just the 11 apostles. There were 120 followers of Jesus in this prayer meeting. And suddenly, as Jesus promised them, the Holy Spirit filled them, and it was a supernatural filling of the Holy Spirit. It says they began to speak in tongues. Now, what is interesting about this is when the disciples began to speak in tongues, they were speaking in specific languages of the different people groups of Jews that had gathered from nations all around the known world and had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And there, as they were in that time, the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave the disciples the ability to speak in their languages so they could hear the gospel. Now, this is different from the type of supernatural tongues that you read about in 1 Corinthians 14, 4. There, it appears to be some kind of prayer language where the individual believer is edified or built up in the faith, and then Paul gives some very specific guidance about how that gift is to be used and how it is not to be used in worship. But here, they were given as a sign of the Holy Spirit filling them the supernatural ability to share the gospel in the native languages of all these Jews who had gathered from nations all around the world. Now, I've never received the gift of tongues, but Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, chapter 12 actually, in verses 27 through 31, that everybody has some spiritual gift that is a follower of Christ. But nobody has all the spiritual gifts, not one. And what we see here at this moment in history is that God was making it clear that these people had been filled with the Spirit to do the work of the church and to carry out the mission of the church. Sign number one of a healthy church is spirit-filled leadership. If there's anything you want to pray 
for the man that God is going to call to be your next pastor. It is spirit-filled leadership. If there's anything you want to pray for your ministerial staff, for your deacons, for your Bible teachers, is that they be filled with the Spirit. Because here's what is the constant tendency in any church. People that lead in the flesh. What do we mean by that? They lead by their natural ability rather than under the leadership of the Holy Spirit in following God's will. And that's deadly to the church. You don't want that. Pray for Marbley to have spirit-filled leadership. Sign number two, that is spirit-filled preaching. Now look at verse 14 following. What you see, there are two character traits of spirit-filled preaching. One is grounded in the Word of God. Peter is getting up to explain what is happening. It obviously boggles people's mind. They hear all these different languages, kind of like we heard in the worship a moment ago, Spanish and English, kind of got a little taste of that. And there are all these different languages that think, well, those guys are drunk. They're drunk as a skunk. It's just 9 a.m. in the morning. Peter said, no, we're not drunk as a skunk. The Holy Spirit has come upon us, and he says, and he explains what's happening by going to the Word. He goes to the prophet Joel in the Old Covenant, one of the Old Testament prophets. He said, look, Joel prophesied this day. This is the beginning of the end days. You say, well, it's been 2,000 years. What's the deal? Well, to God, one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. He sees time different from us. And it's very clear that this is the beginning of the end times in preparation for the second coming of Jesus. And Joel, the prophet, describes this. So we see Peter is grounded in the Word of God, speaking to this Jewish audience that would be grounded in the Word of God in what we know is the Old Covenant. But that's not all. We see spirit-filled preaching is centered on Jesus. And you go to verse 21, and then you begin to read many verses that follow. It is all about Jesus. Now, understand this about spirit-filled preaching. If you have a person, a false teacher, that says they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they start giving you counsel that is not consistent with God's Word, you discount it. No, that is not spirit-filled preaching. Because spirit-filled preaching is never going to contradict the Word of God. But secondly, spirit-filled preaching is always going to be centered on Jesus. You see, what is so unique about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit is always seeking to help us focus on Jesus. Not the Holy Spirit, but on Jesus. That is the role and the calling of the Holy Spirit. And so that's exactly what Peter does. Look at verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? We are saved from death. We're saved from sin. We're saved from hell. And here's how it comes about. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now understand this about Jesus. Here is this Jewish crowd They're living in a Roman world that is influenced by Greek mythology. So they understand all these Greek gods and these Roman gods. They're mythological gods. But what we see right from the beginning is that Jesus was a real human being. Yes, he always was and is and will be. Yes, he is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But at the perfect time in history, he took on human flesh and became a real man like you and me, this man. 
this historical figure. He is not a mythological God like the Greek and Roman gods. He is a real man, but he is the God man because it says right here in these verses in verse 22 that the miracles of God, the miracles that occurred, the supernatural power of Jesus attest to the fact this is no ordinary man. The miracles point to the fact that he is God. And then verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Now understand this, the reason Jesus left his throne in heaven, took on human flesh, born as a baby in Bethlehem, but the reason he came was to go to the cross to pay the sins pay the penalty for the sins where we deserve to pay that penalty because of our sins, he died in our place. And look at what it says in verse 23. This is the predetermined plan of God. But it's also very clear here that man has a responsibility. This is a paradox. How do you reconcile that this is the predetermined plan of God and yet in man's free will, God still holds man responsible for rejecting his son and having him put on that Roman cross because God in his foreknowledge knows how man is going to respond. And so God in his plan sends his son to pay the penalty for our sins. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sins and made right with God when we come to repentant faith. This is why Jesus came. This is why he was born. But that is not all. Jesus did not end on the cross. Look at verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Never forget, our faith rises and falls on the historical accuracy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And understand what God's word says to us. If Christ did not rise from the dead, we of all people on the face of the earth are the biggest fools on the face of the earth. Why would we waste all this time in church, in Christian ministry, in proclaiming the gospel? If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're fools. Because if Christ did not rise from the dead, he's just a man and sin has won and death has won. But Christ did rise from the dead. And no event in all of history comes close to this. Because you see, we realize Christ conquered sin, conquered death, and so will we. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins. And Christ, the Son of God, rose from the dead. That is the gospel. That is what we're called to preach and to believe for salvation. But then Peter goes on and adds further insight. In verses 25 through verse 28, he once again quotes from the Old Covenant, from Psalm, chapter, the 16th Psalm, verses 8 through 11. And he shows how the Psalm was predicting all of this through David's inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing that Psalm that one day this Jesus, the Messiah, would be even greater than David. David was their great hero, the greatest of their kings. But Peter is making it clear. David doesn't compare to Jesus. David is pointing us to the Messiah and pointing us to Jesus, but David is not as great as Jesus. And then we read on. 
Verse 31, speaking of David, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that's the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. In other words, this is old covenant prophecy of the resurrection of the Messiah that Jesus himself fulfilled. He's saying to them, David is great a king as he was, David is dead. But Christ has conquered death. He is, there is none like Jesus. But then he goes on and he says in verse 32, this Jesus was raised up again to which we are all witnesses. You know, one of the great evidences of Christ's resurrection from the dead is that all these men who were now preaching in different languages to the Jews who had come from all around the world is that they were witnesses of Jesus after he rose from the dead. At one time, over 500 people at once saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. And these guys are witnesses, eyewitnesses, that he actually rose from the dead. But that is not all. Verse 33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Now, this is a reference to the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father, where he is at this very moment in history. They saw him ascend to heaven. And they also know that Jesus promised that by his going, he would send the Holy Spirit. So Peter is saying, using the word of God to explain what God is doing at that moment in history, he is saying, now you see the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised us. But that's not all. We see he goes on in that comparison to David, verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You know, one of the things we understand about the second coming of Christ, before he comes, he will come for his church and his church will be gathered up in heaven, that great wedding feast or marriage reception you read about in Revelation 19. It'll be a celebration of the completion of the works church, the work of the church and taking the gospel to every people group on the face of the earth. But it will also be an anticipation of the church returning with Christ who will then bring judgment on the Antichrist and the false prophet of the Antichrist and all those people who have rejected Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It will be a day of judgment. And yet as Philippians 2 talks about, every man and woman, whether they have followed Christ or rejected Christ, will know when Christ comes again that he is Lord, he is King even if it means eternal judgment for them. And Peter is speaking about all of this. So a second sign of the healthy church is spirit-filled preaching, grounded in the Word of God, that is centered on Jesus Christ. Sign number three, conviction of sin. Look at verse 36. Peter says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I want you to think about something. Peter, when he was acting in the flesh with good intentions, told Jesus on the night of the Last Supper, the night before Jesus was crucified, he said, I'll never desert you. I'll give my life for you. Before the night was over, he had denied Jesus three times. That was Peter in the flesh. That was Peter acting in his own strength. But now this same Peter, about 53 days later, because he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he is standing before many of those same Jews who were screaming for Christ to be crucified. And he says, you murdered him. 
Now, that's a different man. Something has happened to transform Peter. He's a new man, new man filled with the Holy Spirit. And he confronts them with the reality that must occur in anyone's life if they're going to understand salvation in Jesus. And that is to realize it was not just those Jews that were screaming for Christ to be crucified that murdered Jesus on the cross, but it was my sin and your sin. All of our sins murdered the Son of God on the cross. And because of that, all we deserve is to be damned, to face the judgment of God. But what is so amazing about the good news of the gospel is that in spite of the fact that we deserve to be judged and deserve the judgment of God because we murdered the Son of God with our sinfulness, God has given us a way to be forgiven and cleansed and made right with Him through the shed blood of Christ on the cross paying the penalty for our sin. That is unbelievable news. And you see, they were under conviction of sin. Now, they, they realized, man, they've blown it big time. And look at how they respond, verse 37. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we then do? In other words, they realized they deserved to be judged by God. What could be worse than rejecting the Son of God and having him crucified on a Roman cross? And so Peter then tells them, look at what he says. Peter said to them, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now, if you've lived in Texas, if you've lived in the South, you've heard repent, and you've heard be saved. You've heard it all your life. You, you, you see it on signs, billboards. You hear about it. What does it mean to repent? Repent means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It is a change of mind about how you've been understanding God in Jesus Christ to where you, under conviction of sin, realizing that you deserve the judgment of God because of your sins, come to claim the mercy and grace of God, and you begin to follow Jesus. You have a different view of Jesus. You have a different outlook on life. That's what repentance is. And that's what Peter is saying to them. Look, you need to repent. And then look at what else he says there in verse 38. He says, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, some of you just reading this one verse will say, oh, we've got to do some good work to be saved. But this is where you want to look at Scripture in light of Scripture, and it's very clear that we are only saved through faith in the grace of God and what He has done for us on the cross. It's not anything we do. But we do know that Jesus commands all of His followers to be baptized as a public witness and testimony that we have received Christ in faith. I assure you, in the, in the church I pastored in Atlanta, there were a lot of folks through the years that went into the waters wet and lost, and they came out of the baptismal waters wet and lost. Actually, they went in and dry and lost, and they came out wet and lost because they'd never really given their heart and life to Christ. You're not saved by being baptized. But we are saved when we trust Christ, and then in obedience to Christ, we are baptized as a testimony of our faith. That's what Peter is saying. And then he says, here's a bonus. You get to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You too, followers of God, not just us leaders of the church, you too get to receive the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, 
that points us to Jesus, that empowers us to follow Jesus and allow the Spirit of the Lord, allows us to be able to become more and more like Jesus in spirit and character. But look at what else he says. He said, be saved from this perverse generation. I ask you, could there be anything that is more applicable to the United States of America in 2020 than that? Be saved from this perverse generation. I know a lot of you are so fired up about this presidential election and who's going to get elected, and it's very important. But I promise you, whoever's elected president is still going to have to be president over a perverse generation that is turned from God. And the only one that can save us from that is not anybody in the White House. It is Jesus. He's the only one. So be sure that your ultimate focus is on him. Because only Jesus can save us from this perverse generation. He is the only one. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. So how do they respond? Well, here's another sign of a healthy church. Sign number four, people coming to Christ. So then those, verse 41, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty pumped to be in a worship service where 3,000 people not only accept Christ, but they come forward to be baptized. Now, that'd be pretty glorious. You see, Peter is preaching this sermon to overwhelmingly Jewish audience that is gathered there on the south side of the temple. If you go there today on the south side of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you'll see where Peter preached a sermon. It's one of the beautiful things of going to Israel, just to be able to picture these events of Scripture. And there on the south side, you see all these cleansing pools of the Jews. They were already there. They didn't realize they had built all these baptistries right there on the south side of the temple. But you see, Jews in that day, what was so unusual about John the Baptist preaching is Jews were coming to be baptized. They didn't believe Jews needed to be baptized. Only Gentiles need to be baptized to become good Jews. But here we see 3,000 Jews had trusted Christ and were baptized in those cleansing pools right there on the south side of the entry of the temple. They would go into those cleansing pools as an outward way of becoming clean to enter the temple. But we understand that when a person enters the baptismal waters, they are simply testifying that Christ has cleansed our hearts and made us right with God through what he has done for us. I'm sure those of you who have had friends or family members come to Christ and you see them baptized here at Marbley or another church where they're a part of, I'm sure it's thrilling to you, but can you imagine 3,000 people? What an event. I mean, the church just literally exploding out of the starting gates. Man, this is a healthy church, all these people coming to Christ. But look at what happens after that. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, another sign of the healthy church is a hunger for the Word of God. I didn't really come to Christ where I began a personal relationship with Christ until I was 16 years old, I went to a Young Life ranch out in Colorado, and even though I had a wonderful Christian home, even though I'd been involved in a great church there in Atlanta, for some reason, it had just never sunk in. I would have told you I was a Christian. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. I believe what the Bible said. I would have told you I was a Christian, but really at that point, I was just using God. I called on God about three different ways, before a big test if I needed to pass, for a big date if I wanted the girl to like me, or before a big ball game if I wanted to play good. Other than that, I was enjoying high school. God, stay out of my life. But for some reason at that camp, 
when the cross was presented to me, what Christ had done for me on the cross, for some reason the Holy Spirit used that time, and all of a sudden my eyes were open that I'd just been using God. And I've been telling folks I was a Christian. I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't following Jesus. And chances are there are a lot of people here like that today that think you're a Christian, but you really just use God. You just call on Him when you need it. You're not really a follower of Jesus. But here's what happens when you really become a follower of Christ. There is a hunger for the Word of God. You know, when I made that decision at that camp, I was kind of ticked. Because a lot of people are having these wonderful spiritual experiences, a lot of tears. I felt nothing. I was kind of ticked about it. But when I went home after that experience, got back to Atlanta, every night I was picking up my Bible with a hunger to read it. Now, I knew a lot of Bible stories, but I had never on my own just been devouring Scripture. Because when you really come to Christ, there is a hunger for the Word of God. I mean, nothing else satisfies. And we see that here. It's a sign of a healthy church, a hunger for the Word of God. But that's not all. Look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Another sign of a healthy church is the love for Christian fellowship. You know, one of the difficult things of the pandemic amidst all of these Christian churches around the world today is having to wear these old masks and social distancing. I mean, let's face it, it's a nuisance. I, I preached in churches during this time where everybody had on a mask. I felt like it was a convention of bank robbers I was preaching to. I couldn't tell where they were smiling or where they were frowning, where they liked me, didn't like me. It's hard to have good fellowship with all these restrictions. Why? Because we love to gather together, hug one another, encourage one another, see the expressions on one another's face. This is not an easy time for us. Because, you see, there's, there's a rich fellowship, a deeper fellowship that comes when we are in Christ. It's another sign of the healthy church. If you don't believe it, just go visit a dead church and see how people get out of there as fast as they can as the service is over. Because people are running from death. They don't want to be around all those dead people. But when Christ is alive in a local church, man, there's just a joy and a fellowship there. And that's another sign of the healthy church. But let's move on. Verse 42 again in the breaking of bread. Now, as much as we have a strength and understanding within our denominational heritage, the importance of believers' baptism is a testimony of our faith. It's a weakness in our denominational heritage about observance of the Lord's Supper. Very often it's just tacked on every couple of months at the end of a worship service. But Jesus says that when we gather together to observe the Lord's Supper, why? Because it helps us remember in a symbolic way the essence of our faith of who Jesus is and why he came. The Lord's Supper is vital in a healthy church. But that's not all. They were devoted to prayer. Another sign of a healthy church, sign number eight, if you're counting, is a praying church. You know, I'm really thrilled that this church is beginning 21 days of corporate prayer together because a praying church has a lot better shot at being a healthy church. And I hope as you're in this time of concentrated prayer, you're not just praying for your search committee. You're not just praying for the man that God is going to choose or has chosen to be your next pastor for him to be discovered, but that you're praying for yourself and where the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin in your life or areas of your life that are not right, you're allowing the Holy Spirit to bring about a cleansing and refinement to where your life really is becoming more and more like the spirit and character of Jesus during this time. Years ago, Ann and I had the privilege to go to South Korea when Korea was going through an incredible revival. 
After World War II, the population was about 1% or 2% Christian, mostly through Presbyterian missionaries that had had an influence there in Korea. But after the war, through the late 80s or early 90s, the nation had grown to have over 30% of the population were born-again Christians. Phenomenal. I don't know of any revival that has occurred in all of history like what happened in Korea during that time. And something we found in every Protestant church, no matter what their denominational label, is every one of them had an every morning prayer meeting at 5 a.m. Can you imagine that? American Christians sitting there, oh my goodness. And not only that, a lot of those churches had an all-night Friday prayer meeting in addition to those early morning prayer meetings. Well, no wonder the church was exploding in Korea in those days. That kind of prayer. You've been given an opportunity, Moberly, over these next 21 days to call on the Lord to do something supernatural in the life of Moberly, in your life, because a healthy church is a praying church. Sign number nine. Some of you think it nine signs. Sermons are supposed to have three points. How long is he going to go? We get to the end of the chapter. Hold on. But verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, I realize a lot of you, especially in the Baptist heritage, you're scared to death of this part of a healthy church. Awe and wonder for the miraculous signs of God. You say, oh, we're going to become charismatic Pentecostal? That's not us? Well, listen. If you're going to be a healthy, Christ-centered church, God is going to be doing miracles in the lives of people in your church that can only be explained by the supernatural power of God. That's the only way you can explain it. And if that's not happening, you're not going to be a healthy church. Our minister of music at Johnson Ferry, he and I served together over 30 years together at that church. And during that stretch, a good number of years ago, his wife contracted chronic fatigue syndrome. Lovely lady, beautiful lady. And I'll tell you, folks, it was painful to see him just holding her arm, walking down the halls of the church. It was painful. I mean, she was so weak, she could hardly walk. And this went for four-plus years. And it went so long that we just felt like she was never going to get over it. Our ministerial staff and spouses, we would take an annual retreat together. And about four and a half years into this, we checked into our room for that retreat. And I did. We heard a knock on our doors. And it was Mark and Rebecca. They came in. She had a really bright smile on our face and Mark said we got something to tell you he said Rebecca's been healed now I've got a confession you don't think low of me I know but I thought to myself yeah we'll see we'll see you know I mean I'm just kind of skeptical we'd seen how bad it was for the last four plus years but not only did she have a sparkle in her eye that day she never went back I mean she was supernaturally healed she'd been to doctor after doctor in Atlanta nobody could help her But you see, that week before they came on that retreat, four or five ladies in our church were just led of the Holy Spirit to go and pray for Rebecca. They prayed for her. They laid hands on her. They asked God to heal her, and she was healed. The only way you can explain it is God did it. And if Marvel is going to be a healthy church, there's going to be miraculous works of God in the lives of people in your church and those influenced by your church. Don't fear it. Embrace it. Say, praise the Lord. But that's not all. There's another sign of a healthy church. Look at verse 44. 
And those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Oh, my goodness, is this communism? And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have needs. Is this communism? No, it's not. Now, listen carefully. Don't get kind of nervous and get the heebie-jeebies here. If ever the church in America is different from the early church, it's right here. Because, you see, a sign of a healthy church is a generous church. And where they were not communists, you see, communism is an atheistic philosophy of forced economic equality. Whereas here, because of their deep love and appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ, they voluntarily shared out of their financial resources as anyone had need. That's a completely different thing. Completely different. Now, if ever the American church is different from the early church, it's here. You know, it's amazing to me when I read studies about evangelical Christians. I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians in America. The average giving is about 2%. 2%. Imagine that. The Lord tells us if we're going to begin to be faithful givers and acknowledge that he owns 100% of what we have, we acknowledge that in faith to God by giving him a tithe. That's 10% of our income. That's a long way to go for the average church member to think about something like that. In the early days of Johnson Ferry, we had a couple of robbers that broke into the church on Sunday afternoon. They unbolted the church's safe and they stole the Sunday offering right there on Sunday afternoon. And I want you to know the people in Johnson Ferry were appalled. Imagine somebody stealing from God and stealing from the church like that. I mean, they were just outraged. So the next Sunday I stood up and I said, I know a lot of you are appalled about what happened, that thieves broke in and stole the whole Sunday offering from our church. But the fact is the majority of you do that every single Sunday. You know, they just kind of looked. But God says, if we don't bring our tithes and offerings to him, we're robbers. And a robber is a low-class thief. That's all a robber is. The fact is, there are a lot of you active, professing Christians here that keep stealing from God Sunday after Sunday. And this needs to be a time of repentance in your life. Because you see, the tithe is not the goal. The tithe is just where you begin to acknowledge that Christ owns it all. And as God blesses you financially over the years, then you're able to give beyond the tithe out of gratitude for what God has done because he blesses us with more, not to live extravagant lives, but to give more. That's the reason for it. Boy, the early church, it was so different from the American church. No wonder we're, we're so restricted on how God wants to use our churches. May this be a time of repentance of so many that are here in that regard. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Sign number 11, unity in the church. Now, listen, are you listening? Listen. If Marbley's number one goal is to be unified, I promise you, you will never experience unity in this church. Because unity is a byproduct of following Jesus and fulfilling his mission. It's a byproduct. Think about those of you who've served in the military. You've been in, armed, in one of our armed conflict times, in one of our wars, Gulf War, Vietnam War, whatever it may be. You have soldiers from all walks of life, rich, poor, middle class, different ethnicities, different parts of the nation. They talk different. 
And the fact is, you really didn't like a lot of those folks, naturally. But when the battle begins and the enemy begins to fire and you're all on mission together, it creates a bond among those soldiers because they have a common mission. It's a byproduct. And it's the same in the church. If you want unity most of all for Marvelly, I promise you, trying to keep everybody happy, you're going to have a church in constant conflict. But if you're desiring to follow Jesus and fulfill his mission of taking the gospel to every people group on the face of the earth, then unity is a byproduct of that. It's beautiful when that occurs. But there's another sign, another sign. They were meeting in large and small groups. They would either meet at the temple or synagogues, and then they would have their small groups. Worship, large gathering, small group gatherings where they could interact, ask questions, talk more freely. That's another sign of a healthy church, large and small groups. But that's not all. It says in verse 46, with gladness. There was a lot of joy there. You know, all those years of pastoring Johnson Ferry on Johnson Ferry Road in Atlanta, one of the great joys in my heart would be in my office and I would hear just cackles of laughter down the hallway. Just a lot of joy there. Didn't mean there wasn't a lot of sadness when people lost loved ones, when they faced disappointment, when they faced rejection and hurt. There, there was a lot of hardship, but there's also an inner joy when a person is growing in Christ that is radiant. And it's a sign of a healthy church. It's just a lot of joy there. But not only that, sign number 14. How many signs is it going to be? We're getting there. The sincerity of heart. There was a genuineness about the early church. You see, in a healthy church, it's not a bunch of people playing church, but it's a church filled with sinners who have been saved that genuinely want to follow Jesus. They're not perfect, but they are people who are really genuine. They're authentic. They share their struggles. They're honest. Think about how hard it is for you to relate to somebody that you think is that perfect Christian. You just can't relate. Versus that genuine Christian that is honest about their struggles, honest about their difficulties, and yet they want to follow Jesus. Man, that just battles the hypocrisy of the church like nothing else. It's a sign of a healthy church. And look at this final sign. Verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, another sign of the healthy church is a church that's filled with praise for God. And I, I realize a lot of you think that's expressed when you have a wonderful uh, music leadership, worship leadership in your worship service like we experienced this morning. That is a form of praising God, no doubt about it, in worship. But it's much more than that. They were praising God out in the neighborhoods, in the marketplace. And here's what they were praising God for. You won't believe what God is doing in our church. You won't believe it. They couldn't help but talk about it. And look at the result. More and more people were coming to Christ. Because as all these signs of health were there in the early days of the church, the people would go out living their everyday life and they couldn't help but talk about what God was doing in the lives of people in the church. And what does that do? The end result as the church continued to grow. 
And people were coming to Christ by the thousands because people couldn't help but praise God for what he was doing. Growth, a byproduct of a spiritually healthy church. So question, how healthy is Moberly? You know, in some ways, as difficult a time as your church has faced over the last six months, there's a lot more health here than you realize. At the same time, there's a lot of things about Marbley that are unhealthy as well because so many of you are struggling. Now, understand this about church. You can take heart in that because there's no perfect church. And if any of you out there find a perfect church, whatever you do, don't join that church. You'll mess it up in a skinny second. Because we're all sinners. We all fall short. There's no perfect church, not one. But in a healthy church, centered on Jesus and growing in Christ and fulfilling his mission for the church, we see a church that more and more reflects the spirit and the character of Jesus. And that is magnetic in drawing people to himself. So the big question today is this. Not just marbly, how you doing with your health, but you and I as individuals, how are we doing when it comes to spiritual health and some of the signs that we've heard about from the Word of God today? What are areas that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that you need to repent of and allow God to transform you? What are areas of sin in your life that you need to confess to God and repent of and get right? What are areas of giftedness and strength in your life that God wants you to use for the building up of his church at Marbley? What are the areas of strength that you bring to this church? You see, that's the big question for today. If God is going to transform Moberly into being the healthy church he desires for it to be, it begins with each of us being willing to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can become more and more like Jesus in spirit, in character, in fulfilling his mission. Oh, Lord, may it be. Let's pray. Father God, there are bound to be people here today, a lot of those cultural Christians that we have in every church in the South and Southwest, people who believe with their mind what the Bible says is true and they think they're a Christian, but they've never really surrendered their heart and life to Christ. They deep down inside feel like they've been good enough that you're going to accept them for heaven, but Lord, Help that person today through the preaching of your word, through the conviction of your Holy Spirit, realize that all of us deserve to be damned. All of us deserve your judgment because we have crucified your son through our sin. And yet, Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel that we can be forgiven and cleansed and made right with you through what Jesus has done. Oh, Lord, may this be a time of repentant faith for the person who needs to come to Christ and follow Jesus. 
And Lord, for those who are followers of Jesus, as you, the Holy Spirit, convict us of sin in our life, shortcomings in our life, or you convict us about the strengths that you've blessed us with that perhaps we're not using to the fullest for the building up of your kingdom here through Moberly. Oh, Lord, through a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, may you empower that follower of Christ to be all that you've called each of us to be for the building up of your church. This is our prayer. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.